The Cliff Dwellers by Henry Blake Fuller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Sabah Fatima. Chapter 1 On the 10th floor of the Clifton is the office of the Massachusetts Brass Company. Those whose minds are attuned to an appreciation of upholstery and kindred matters pronounce this little suite the gem of the whole establishment. Even many who are not adepts in the matter of house furnishing and who are much too rushed and preoccupied to become such have been known to pause in their course through the Clifton's long corridors on occasions when the ribbed glass door of the brass company happened to be standing ajar and to say to themselves with certain home offices in mind, Now, why can't our people do as much for us? Indeed, there is cause enough for envy in that small square of velvety axminster in the harmonious tinting of the walls in the padded leather backs of the swivel chairs, in the polished brightness of the cherry desktops, in the fresh blotting pads and the immaculate inkstands. To sit in this pleasant little apartment for half an hour is to receive quite a new impression of the possible luxury of business, the ultimate elegance of trade. This may be managed as easily as not if you happen to have any dealings with D. Warwood Floyd, agent, according to the legend on the translucent pane of the door, who is quite unlikely to hurry you out before you have finished. Don't be in such a drive, he will perhaps say to you. Stay and smoke a cigar. For business is not too exacting a consideration with the western branch of the Massachusetts Brass Company. It is less a hive of industry than a social exchange. The hours are easy and the habitues are as frequently callers as customers. They are often Jacks or Toms, whose fathers are social pillars in Boston and large landowners in Wyoming and Dakota, and Jack and Tom, birds of passage in Scotch chariots and billycock hats, are given to alighting for a brief breathing spell on this lofty perch where they reproach the slipshod dress and careless speech of their friends' small office force by the trim neatness of their own clothes and conversation. It may be guessed that this snug haven of refuge has been established and maintained less to extend the company's trade than to provide a place for the company's forward. I say company's forward, for in this case company and family are interchangeable terms. The Massachusetts Brass Company is the Floyd family, and the Floyd family is the Massachusetts Brass Company. The company pays no dividends, but it is very generous in its salaries. It is liberal with Hosea G. Floyd, who is its president, and with Winthrop C. Floyd, who is its treasurer, and with H. Lovell Floyd, who is its New York agent, and with Cadwallader P. Floyd, who looks after the Philadelphia interests. Nor does it quite forget the Walworth Floyd, who holds up one end more or less effectively in the West. But Walworth is last and the youngest of the Floyds. His marriage was not to the complete satisfaction of his family and his single independent venture before leaving home in the direction of coffee and spices compelled his brothers to put their hands into their pockets rather deeply. So while the rest of the Floyds think that, all considered, they have rather done the fair thing by Walworth, yet Walworth, on the other hand, regards his assignment to the West as a mild form of punishment and exile. It does give me a little elbow room, though. This is the silent acknowledgement that Walwood sometimes makes to himself, but grudgingly. Walwood Floyd is a sleek, well-fed, prosperous-looking fellow of thirty, 
His figure is a trifle too short and dumpy to be pronounced absolutely good, but it is always strikingly well dressed, for he has lived in the West hardly a year as yet. His face is not handsome, but it is gentlemanly quite. One might indeed complain of the retreating lines of his forehead, and regret too that his chin once perfect now shows leaning towards the duplet. But on the other hand, his well-dressed nose, you are sure, has been figuring in family portraits for the last hundred years, and his plump hands, by reason of the fine texture of the skin and the shapeliness of the nails, form a point that is distinctly aristocratic. Yet, penmanship under his manipulations becomes a very crabbed and laborious affair, and this light species of manual labor is usually performed, so far as he is concerned, by other hands. He has a sort of general clerk, and he shares the services of a stenographer with two or three of his neighbors. He employs, too, an office boy who would idle away a good deal of time if Walworth were not in the habit of sending frequent communications to the steward of his club. Walworth, commented in his plump placidity, has been accustomed to fare sumptuously every day, and to worry his head about as few things as possible. His dining he does for himself, his thinking he has somebody else to do for him, his bookkeeping and auditing, and so on are done in the East. And a friend of his, he has no enemies, once said that his stomach was in Chicago, while his brains were in Boston. Walworth, considering his family training and traditions, is inexplicably expansive. Even more than his limited capabilities for business, even more than the exactions of a wife whose pinched girlhood has helped her to a full appreciation of her present membership in a wealthy family, has his own open-hearted one homie kept him back. He is just a man to whom one writes a letter of introduction without any sense of imposing a burden, or to whom one may present it without experiencing any great sense of embarrassment. And it is a letter of introduction, in point of fact, which is now lying half-folded on the extended elbow rest of his desk, and has been lying there for a quarter of an hour. Most of us know something about letters of introduction, promised so thoughtlessly, written so glibly, presented so reluctantly, received so grudgingly. But when the letter is merely a trifling and insignificant line, a line which has no great importance for the bearer and can cause no great annoyance to the recipient, and when its presentation here and its accounting for there may be considered as but a minute item in the general system of social bookkeeping, then we have an episode that passes quickly and lightly for all concerned. Such appears to be the situation in the office of the Massachusetts Brass Company. Walworth is tilted back comfortably in one of his handsome chairs and sends out a casual glance through the nearest window. The sun is struggling with a half-humanous haze, and through this haze a hundred streaks of smoke are driving headlong towards the lake. A tall clock tower looms up three or four streets away, and one of its faces, on the looker's own level, gives the hour as half-past ten. Well, we are living up on Pine Street, Mr. Ogden, he is saying. Just this side of the water works, the place where the wheels go round, you know. You beat me here by a few minutes this morning, but I think I can promise to be the first on the ground when you call on us there. He is running his fingers over the edges of several little sheets of brass. 
A few bunches of these, together with a set or two of brass rings of varying diameters and thicknesses, are the only intimations of merchandise that the office yields. Sometimes even these are bundled away in a drawer, and then commerce is refined completely beyond the ken of the senses. However, don't go. I am a little late in getting around this morning, but the mail is light. Ferguson will look after it. Sit down again. The visitor, thus urged, sank back into the chair from which he had just risen. He was a slender young man, a good height, and his age was perhaps twenty-four. His complexion was of the colourless kind that good health alone keeps from sallowness. His hair was a light brown and fine and thick, and it fell across his temples in the two smooth wings that were made by an accurate parting in the middle. He had the beginnings of a shadowy little moustache, and a pair of good eyes which expressed a fair amount of self-reliance and any amount of hope. "'And how are you finding the west side?' Walworth pursued. "'I don't know much about it myself. This is a big town and awfully cut up. A man has to pick out his own quarter and stick to it. If you move from one side of the river to another, you bid goodbye to all your old friends. You never see them again.' You said you were somewhere near Union Park, I believe. Yes, George Ortgen answered. I have landed in a pretty good place, and I want to stay there if I can. They are a sort of farming people, or were, to start with. They came from New York State, I believe, and haven't been here but a year or two. Is there anybody in this town who hasn't come from somewhere else, or who has been here more than a year or two? Walworth laughed. I haven't. But you go around some and you may find a few that have. The mother cooks, the father markets, the daughter helps to wait on table. Nice friendly people. Make me think of those at home. He smiled a little wistfully, about the only people so far that do. Well, I have heard that there are some pretty good streets over there, is Walworth's vague response. Ours is. We have streets, all of one sort and platted regularly, I mean, and ornamental lampposts. And I'm only a block from the park. Everything seems all right enough. I dare say, but don't you find it rather far away from... queried Floyd with a sort of insinuating intentness. However, I have no idea of reproducing Walwood's remarks on the local topography. They were voluminous, but he would be found prejudiced and but partly informed. Besides, his little tirade was presently thrown out of joint by a dislocating interruption. Walworth always experienced a mental dislocation, slight or serious, whenever his wife called at the office. Nor were matters much helped when his wife was accompanied by her sister. It was the latter of these who now opened the door with an assured hand and who shut it after the two of them with a confirmatory slam. Yes, we are here, she seemed to imply. In Mrs. Walford Floyd, our young man met a lean and anxious little body, who appeared strenuous and exacting and of the kind who, as the expression goes, are hard to get along with. She had a sharp little nose and a pair of inquisitorial eyes. She was dressed richly, but as simply as a sword in its cupboard. If Walwood spent an evening abroad, it was a fair assumption that his wife knew where he was and all about it. Otherwise, the sword was drawn. We have been almost three quarters of an hour getting here, she said in a tense way. Something was the matter with the cable and they kept us in the tunnel nearly twenty minutes. As I tell Anne, you can always count on that sort of thing when you have got anything of real importance on hand and not much time for it. 
and yet we talk about the jams and delays in Tremont Street. She drew down her mouth and blinked her eyes indignantly. She felt all the shortcomings of her new home very keenly. She made every one of them a personal affront. Anne thought it was amusing. Perhaps it won't seem so after it has happened to her three or four times more. Walwood glanced apprehensively in the direction of his sister-in-law's chair. She was understood to be in his house on a brief visit. He trusted that she was not to be exposed a second time to so annoying an accident. Anne Wilde was a stout woman who was nearly forty. Her appearance indicated that, while she had not escaped the buffets of the world, yet her past experiences had only seasoned and toughened her for her future ones. In this earthly turmoil of give and take, she seemed to have played a full inning on each side. She had begun as a poetess, she had gone on as a boarding housekeeper, and she was now ready to take her first step as an investor. To turn from literature to lodgings indicates talent. To do so well in lodgings as to have funds for the purchase of property indicates genius. Miss Wilde at fourteen was a plain child whose straggling hair was drawn back from her forehead by an India rubber comb that passed over the top of her head from ear to ear and she was called Annie. At seventeen, conscious of the first flutterings of sentiment and prompted by indications of increasing comeliness, she renamed herself Annette. At twenty, somewhat disappointed in the promise of beauty, yet consoled in some degrees by a spreading reputation as a versifier, she changed her name to Anne. At twenty-six, as the result of a disappointment in an affair of the heart and of a growing appreciation of the modesty of her social role, she resignedly styled herself Anna. And at thirty-five, fully convinced of her own hopeless plainness, of the completely practical cast of things generally, and of the uselessness of flying the flag of idealism any longer, she bobbed off at the same time both her hair and her name. She presented a short-cut pole of frizzled grey, and she signed herself Anne. What's in a name? Sometimes nothing. Sometimes a whole biography. I have been telling Mr. Ogden, said Walworth, that he ought to be in our part of town. He ought to be one of our little circle. His wife looked up rather coldly. Her little circle was not open to any new candidate that the uncalculating good nature of her husband might propose. That house around on Hush Street could take him in, I imagine, and all the people he will want to know are right around there. Why, you have been in Worcester, Francis. You know the Parkers. Well, Mrs. Parker is Mr. Ogden's aunt. Aunt, I think you said? Yes, aunt. So you see about how it is. Always glad to welcome one more Eastern pilgrim to our little, what you may call it, oasis, you know. Why didn't you say Mr. Ogden was from the East, Walworth? asked his wife, taxingly, and looked at the young man for the first time. Her gaze was critical, but not forbidding. Yes, most of us are on the north side, she observed. Ogden is as good as a neighbor already, Walworth went on, perseveringly, a business neighbor. He's going into underground national, letters and all that, you know. Pretty good for three weeks, I call it. If most of our fellows who come out here did as well in three months, it would be money in Mrs. Lloyd's pocket. To think of the fives and tens and twenties that have gone to old schoolmates of Wins and to fellows who knew Lovell, 
when he was on the road ogden flushed a little and took the first steps towards a frown it is not pleasant to contemplate your possible inclusion in the reprehensible class of the strapped and the stranded not to feel that only a lucky letter of recommendation has saved a friend's wife from being crossed in some caprice or balked in some whim but floyd although cordial and liberal was not invariably fine they stop me on the street and they buttonhole me in the hotels and you can't think how many of them come right here of course i always do what i can but how do they find me out and why is it that when i am going up home late over the viaduct and somebody is hanging about to strike some man for a quarter i am always the man to be struck one or two of them have actually paid me bad but who asked her sister-in-law she had a loud rasping voice the men on the viaduct the others Walwood indicated briefly. You are too generous, said Ogden. What a position for a man who was not to enter upon an engagement tomorrow. And what might three months be, if judged by the hopes and fears and expectations and disappointments of his three weeks? The underground, repeated Mrs. Floyd, turning towards her husband. Isn't that Mamie Brainard's father's bank? She asked in a general way. Mr. Brainard is the president, assented Ogden with a severe smile i addressed myself to the cashier he added shortly i was sure i had heard of it she rejoined with a glacial graciousness well if you have heard of it my dear her husband joked how widely known it must be you ought to have heard of it you have had enough checks on it i am sure but mrs floyd did not pursue the subject she looked at her sister with that prim seriousness which made something on the mind or on two minds and her sister returned a look in kind and they both looked in the same fashion back and forth between walwood and his caller and wilde snapped the catch of her handbag once or twice and glanced between times at some loose papers inside it ferguson in the other room thought he perceived the approach of a domestic crisis a disputed dressmaker's bill perhaps yet there might be other reasons he knew that the cook was sometimes impertinent and that the market man now and then forgot to send a fried fish he himself was a mere boarding bachelor yet he had come to learn something of the relief which follows the shifting of a housekeeper's gears to the shoulders of the housekeeper's husband ferguson had relieved the tedium of many a half hour by short-handing bits of dialogue that accompanied connubial spats between his employer and his employer's wife these signs and tokens were not lost on Ogden. He rose again to go. You were the lost on Floyd himself, whose apprehension of a bad quarter of an hour was heightened by the absence, as yet, of any exact data. He had no wish to hold the field alone, and he begged Ogden not to hurry his de departure. Where are the girls? he asked his wife. I thought you said they came along with you. They did. They are in the building. They will be up in a few minutes. That child somebody ought to look after her then why not wait a little while floyd suggested to ogden my wife's affair won't take long ferguson won't you just clear up that chair out there and find the paper and now what is it he asked the two women when they were left together End of chapter one